pickaxe. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, this is Nolan Bushnell. I'm considered the father of the video games, and uh, you're listening to my naughtiest child, One Life Left. BAFTA with Nolan Bushnell, creator of Pong and the winner of this year's BAFTA Fellowship Award. Welcome, Nolan. It's good to be here. Congratulations on winning the fellowship. Um, what sort of privileges does such a, an honour give you? Are you able to drive sheep across Westminster Bridge now, that sort of thing? Does it open up other doors for you? You know, it's just starting. I, I see this wonderful club that I now have access to and, uh, and this a very, very heavy statue that will be on my mantle. Um, and people are looking around at me like I'm a nicer guy than I used to be. <laughs> Excellent stuff. And is it is it um, is it the sort of thing that you have to hand over year, year to year? So has, has Will Wright given you his now, or do you get to keep it forever? I get to keep it forever. Fantastic stuff. Um, so, having founded the industry, you've you've literally been in it longer than anyone else. Uh, do you still enjoy it? I do. I think the business is fascinating, and it's changing and expanding and morphing. So the uh, similarity between what it was uh, 30 years ago and what it is now is, you know, de minimis. Excellent. And um, you've probably been interviewed millions of times, I would have thought, and you're probably getting tired of the same old questions. Um, But what One Life Left really want to know is, um, what's your favorite color? Green. (laughs) I'm joking, of course. Now, you're here today to do a, a session about your life in video games. What sort of stuff can we expect? I think I'll be talking about some of the things that were interesting anecdotes along the way and uh, crazy things that have happened and uh, and just sort of doing some reminiscing. Uh, I always like to pontificate about what the next few years are going to be like uh, just because it's fun to see if you can figure out uh, the future before it happens. Can you give us any uh, sneak previews now, or can you, can you tell us something that you've had to cut, something that's exclusive for One Life Left uh, listeners? I believe uh, the next few years are going to be heavily influenced by physicality. Um, there's some technology coming that allows you to do Wii-type games, but without controllers. Wow. Which, is that technology you're working on or technology you've seen? 
It's technology that I've seen and that I'm working on. Okay, so we're going to have to stay tuned for that sort of thing. Well, you know, the old, the old story says is that if you really want to predict the future, you, you need to invent it. Interesting stuff. <laughs> um, and having had such a, a long and fascinating career in the video games, did, when you started out, did you ever expect them to be kind of where we are now, They're probably the most popular entertainment medium in the, in, in the world? I expected it to be very large. I don't believe I expected it to be equivalent in size to the film business. But um, I could tell that the technology was moving so quickly that the video games could take advantage of every advance and, uh, and sometimes spearhead that advance. And so, yeah, I, I saw it as being a big, big business. But it's but it's funny to, to chart its route now from just, you know, a few moving pixels to these huge virtual worlds. I mean, it's, it's something that no one really could have pr predicted. Actually, it was pretty predictable because you could see that as computer processing got faster, that you could create through mathematics any object that you wanted to see. And... And remember that uh, many times in the early days, it would take days to create a picture. And all you had to do is say, gee, if I had a processor that was 50 times faster than this, I could do it in real time. I guess that's why you're the visionary and I'm a lowly uh, radio host. <laughs> <laughs> um, as, the, as the founding father, do you look down on your, your kids like GTA running around causing trouble and, and kind of shake your head at their adolescent behavior? Whenever you create power, um, there's always the power to do good as well as ill. And, you know, I, I don't condemn people for trying to make a buck. I just don't, I won't give it an award. I don't think it's good for the world to glorify antisocial behavior. Um, and so, uh, no, I, I think that some of these games are trash. And, uh, and you know, I think uh, there's a lot of trashy movies and trashy shows. Uh, some of them aren't violent. They're just stupid. <laughs> but now um, I guess you can't put the genie back in the box, can you? And um, what it would be nice to see would be games returning to, like, a simple, more simple form of gameplay? No, I, I think that, uh, that games shouldn't be restricted uh, based on my taste. I think that we're adults and we should be able to make our own decisions. And, you know, we always hope that uh, everybody is going to have good taste, meaning the same taste that I have. <laughs> but but it's not not going to happen. And so, and, and nor should it. Okay. Um, you, is it true that a film is being made about your life? That's correct. So how far in development is it? I'm not allowed to comment on that. <laughs> okay, but um, I mean, some of us, probably without reason, in fact, all of us, um, have often kind of sat there and wondered who would play us if a film was made about our life. Are you, are you happy with Leonardo DiCaprio? I am. I mean, he's, uh, I think, a tremendous talent, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm honoured. And if, uh, if, I mean, obviously, if you can't talk about it, don't talk about it, but have you been giving him tips, coaches, uh, coaching him through the way, that sort of thing? Can't talk about it. <laughs> well, that's yes. Then um, I've got a few uh, a few Twitter questions from our from our listeners. Um, Dean uh, Howarth wants to say um, to settle thousands of schoolyard arguments, which was better, the Atari ST or the Amiga? Boy, that's very very difficult. Um, the Amiga 
in my estimation, had better color control of the palette and allowed a slightly better outcome of certain things. Um, but it did so at the sacrifice of some speed. So I think it, I think he may go slightly better. <laughs> Exclusive news. Okay, our PS3 Attitude wants to know, um, how do you feel about the current Atari management and their stated casual direction for the business? I think the casual game business is uh, an important place for the world to be. In, in a lot of ways, it keeps with the threads of, uh, of the old Atari. Atari really prided itself in gameplay, that uh, we spent a lot of time fine-tuning the timing, the challenges, the difficulty, the rounds, and uh, to that extent, uh, if they are able to achieve that, I think it's, it would be good for the franchise. Okay, thank you. And finally, um, quite a few of our listeners um, want to end uh, the speculation, um, and if you could uh, fess up now, uh, where are all the ET cartridges buried? <laughs> you know, that was after my time um, done by the idiots that took over for me. Um, but I really do believe they're out in the Arizona desert somewhere. One day they'll turn up as collector's items, I'm sure. Nolan, thank you so much for joining us today. My, my pleasure being here. Uh, good luck this evening. Really looking forward to it. And um, we look forward to the listeners' reaction. If you've got any comment, um, questions, feedback, that sort of thing, email team at onelifeleft.com. Uh, Nolan, we'll see you soon. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, good evening. I'm Ian Livingstone, Creative Director of IDOS and Deputy Chair of the BAFTA Games Committee. I'm very pleased to be introducing tonight's guest and games industry legend. With Pong, he made video games a truly mass-market entertainment medium. Pong also taught the development community that no matter how good technology and graphics are, they play a supporting role to gameplay. But before we meet our honored guest, here are a few details about the evening. Tonight's event is part of BAFTA's Access All Areas program to introduce access to opportunity within film, TV, and video games industries. Whether or not you're a BAFTA member, you can sign up to our, meet, our mailing list under the learning section of the BAFTA website to receive details of our regular live events, webcasts, and competition giveaways. As part of our commitment to reaching as many people as possible through our events, tonight's proceedings are being filmed and will be webcast on BAFTA's website. Because of the filming, please switch off your mobile phones... And also, please do not use flash photography. Thank you very much for that. For your information, our honored guests will also be joining other industry leaders to present the keynote at the game-based learning conference tomorrow morning at the brewery in Barbican, where they'll be exploring the positive impact of video games and social media on the quality of learning and teaching practice. We hope we'll see you there. But now, here to interview our guest is executive producer at Knickknack Games, industry veteran and keen Gaming historian Andy Nuttall, please welcome Andy. And of course, please welcome the founding father of video games and founder of Atari, the company that gave us Pong with its immortal instructions, avoid missing ball for high score, BAFTA's newest video games fellow, Nolan Bushnell. Thank you all for coming. He's been called the father of video games. Nolan Bushnell was the driver the first coin-operated video game computer space and the simple but hugely successful Pong. 
He followed that with the first mass market console, establishing one of gaming's most iconic brands, Atari. That was back in 1971. His understanding shaped the video games industry and continues to do so today, nearly 40 years on. Now, Nolan has been honored with BAFTA's highest accolade, the Academy Fellowship, following in the steps of Alfred Hitchcock, Steven Spielberg, and Will Wright. Welcome. That's cool. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it's actually pretty amazing. You know, when, when you think back early in the days of the video game business, uh, it was so hard to do anything. I mean, Pong had a square ball, not because we wanted it that way. It was because the only way we could get it to go, you know, it was, uh, you know, having a, a round ball would have taken much too much compute power. <laughs> so you were always an inventor, is that fair to say? Even oh, as yeah. a child? Even as a very, very young man, I, uh, I invented a control for a rocket ship <laughs> out of a lot of old you know, light switches and an orange crate and bottle caps with a nail drop driven through the middle. So I had a lot of knobs and that. And in my mind, I went to a lot of places in the galaxy. Is it true you invented some liquid-powered rocket roller skates? Yeah. Um, that was actually kind of a scary situation. Um, I knew I couldn't make it light enough to get it to fly, but I just thought, let me see if I can get this thing to work. And, and of course, I used a glass container for the propellant, and, and I figured in order to pressurize it, all I had to do was get it boiling. That was not a good idea. <laughs> and uh, the, the thing got moving, and, of course, I also had that roller skate aimed at the garage. That was also not a good idea. <laughs> and uh, so it took off, and the glass bottle blew, you know, shattered. All this boiling alcohol went up and flashed. There was a fireball that came out of the front of the garage that it, it looked like World War III. And uh, thank God it was just flash because, you know, there was not any real heat to it. I mean, it, was, it didn't happen, so nothing really caught on fire. But when you see the family garage with a great big fireball coming out of the front of it, you say, boy, I'm going to really get it this time. And did you? My mom never knew. <laughs> so the engineering of fun, yes. I suppose, from an early age. Yes. And university in Utah, mm -hmm. you referred to both your educations, one in electronic engineering. Right. And the other one you talked about, uh, you've talked about before in interviews, is your fairground work. I... Uh... I started a advertising company and uh, made a blotter about like this and a schedule of events and sold advertising around the sides and um, would give it out at the beginning of the quarter um, so kids would 
so all the students would have a, uh, a an idea of what was uh, what the schedule events were, and uh, it was a good, pretty good little business. And uh, but I knew that no matter how much money I had, I could spend more. And so I thought that the best idea would be to get a fun job, keep me, you know out of harm's way at night. And so I got a job at the local amusement park nights. And I figured there are girls there and, and you know, I'll get paid a little bit, not, not like the ad agency. And, uh, and it turned out that I was good at it. It was fun. And so the manager quit the next year and they asked me if I would want to manage the games department. And so I had my, my advertising company in, in the days and working at the amusement park at nights. And then I went back to the university and saw Steve Russell's Space War. And that was the epiphany. It was the thing where I said, if I could bring this game that was on a PDP-1, you know, million-dollar computer, to the amusement park, I could make money. I, I mean, this would... I just knew with every fiber of my being, that this was going to be huge. But you take 25 cents a play and you divide it into a million dollar computer and the math doesn't work. And so I said, but someday. Hmm. And so I filed it away, ended up graduating, moved to California, and one day the computer came across my desk. Uh, the $5,000, I said, ah, maybe. And you used that to... To do what exactly? I mean, so computer space was, was a, a well, piece of engineering, right? So not a computer. Now, this was the interesting part. You start out doing things wrong. But if you're clever and you keep at it, sometimes you can, you can get past it. And, and I figured out that there was a $5,000 computer. It was called a, uh, a, a data general uh, uh, 800. It had a clock speed 800 kilohertz. <coughs> that the mind boggles. Anyway, um, and so I felt that if I could get it to run three terminals, and my value added in my mind was I was going to build a really, really cheap interface that would allow a regular television set to operate on that computer. Understand the PDP-1 video display was actually a modified radar display, and they cost about $25,000. Clearly, that doesn't work either. So that was, that was the angle. And, and I felt that I had to do timeshare and get four quarter slots hooked to four different monitors run by this computer. And so I started the design and I kept running out of time. You know, I just couldn't refresh things fast enough. And so I started adding little pieces of hardware to take over various functions of the game. And, uh, but I still kept running out of time. There were these edge conditions that if you had two missiles and two rocket ships in this particular time on all six monitors, uh, 
or all, all four monitors, it wouldn't work. And so I throw one monitor away. And so now we only do three monitors. And the economics started getting a little sketchy. And then I decided I had to throw away another one and just do it with two monitors. And I said, well, if the thing works most of the time, it'll, it'll, it'll be pretty good. <laughs> and, uh, and so I kept making the, the interfaces a little bit smarter. And then I just said, this isn't going to work. And so I abandoned the project. I said, this, the time's not right. I've got to have a stronger, faster computer, cheaper computer. And then one time I said, hmm, what if I throw the computer away and do it all in hardware? And that's where I came up with the, the slide, you know, the counters, side slipping, everything like that. And all of a sudden, the whole computer that doing the whole game was cheaper than the interfacing with that damn mini computer. And so all of a sudden I had, rather than timeshare, I had a standalone unit, the computer of which was cheap, I mean, so much cheaper than having the, that, that computer. I mean, the, the, the circuit boards and the parts, $380 compared to this $5,000 computer. Wow. All of a sudden, I was ecstatic. I said, you know, there's business here. And uh, pushed on it, and... Uh, and computer space was born. Hmm. And, uh, but there was a problem. The problem was I loved it. All my friends loved it. All my friends were engineers. Put a guy with a pint in a bar in front of the game, he was baffled. You know, it was just too hard to play. And, uh, and so uh, computer space... We did about $3 million, which uh, I thought was about half what the market should have done for it. But, you know, I was a young kid from Utah. Figured, three, you know, three $3 million, and I got a royalty on it. And, and uh, I said, you know, we can do better. And then um, we got a, uh, a contract with Bally, who was a big coin op manufacturer in, in Chicago. And our idea at that time was we were going to be a design house. Never thought that we'd have, you know, our own factory. And uh, so we got a contract, and that was enough to start our company. It was called Syzygy at the time. That's a really good technical game word. S-Y-Z-Y-G-Y. I knew we had a problem when I... When I ran out of Ys uh, on, on, on the set that we had. Anyway. Um, the computer space was, I mean, the look of it must have been quite imposing, I would have thought. You, you spent some time, was it modeling clay, a clay version of it in, was it Ted Dabney's daughter's bedroom or something? Uh, no, it's actually my daughter's bedroom. Right. But, no, the computer was doing on that. I actually did the clay model on the kitchen table. Oh. But isn't it like six foot tall? Oh, no, no, no. It was a little tiny puppy. Oh, okay. It was about this big, and then we scaled it up. <laughs> but uh, the hard part about that is it had to be able to come out of the mold. And so if you'll notice, there's some undercuts, but you can pull it out that way. We'll see it, I think, in a minute. Um, yeah. We've got some footage 
Um, I guess when you receive BAFTA's fellowship, Will Wright, I guess most of you guys know, created the Spore and uh, sorry, Spore and the Sims, and along with your former Atari colleague uh, Alan Alcorn, they were good enough to put their thoughts on camera. And uh, if we can run the first part of the VT, this is what they had to say about the early days of Atari. Al was always the voice of reason. <laughs> no, Al is probably the best engineer in the world. He is, by any standard of imagination, a consummate reader. He understands technology. Um, I can remember challenging him. I said, you know, this has to be, you, you have to be able to do this for about two bucks, because that's all you He says, two bucks? That's impossible. And I'd say, but, but it's really important. And I said, you know, if you want me to work on it, I, I will, but, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of busy. And, and it, was, it was one of those things that he hated that when I'd say, well, I'll, I'll try it. If you can't do it, I'll try it, you know. He just wouldn't allow that, and uh, and and it was kind of this this thing. I probably didn't pick up a soldering iron from the time uh, uh, from probably 1972 on, but I I kept being able to threaten. <laughs> but Al was so brilliant. Uh, that circuit that he said he couldn't do for two bucks. Do you know what the ultimate cost of the uh, of the interface to the television set that I was willing to pay two bucks for, he got it down to 37 cents. I don't even think I could have done that. <laughs> no, he was just over and over again, he, he really broke some of the uh, uh, expectations of what engineering could do at that, at that point in time. Using clever things, he he could figure out ways to use the same resistor six times in a circuit. I mean, it was just amazing. Hmm. And Pong two player, I guess now looking back on it, we can see that that might have been something monumental in games. You know, the first computer space was the first game. Pong was the first two player game. Was that intentional? The social side, Total, totally serendipity. In fact, one could have called it a mistake. No. It was actually a very fortunate mistake because I told you we, we'd gotten a contract with Bally to do a driving game uh, and a complex game. And um, when, when uh, I hired Al and, and challenged him to, to do this Pong game, I thought it was just going to be a throwaway. It was the simplest thing I, I could think of. And when Ball going back and forth was one thing, but when when the ball hits the paddle at the top, it bounces up and down. That, all of a sudden, that little change was night and day. It was really, really fun once that was in. And then one other little change, the ball speed up after you hit it a few times. All of a sudden, that became 
it, it was a great game, and we were playing it late at night. And so um, and I said, hey, maybe we can get Bally to take this game, you know, and, and fulfill our contract for the driving game. And um, we took it, and so I took it back to them, and they looked at it and they said, it's a two-player game. I don't, you know, we don't think that that will work. And I and. And then flying back, I was disappointed because I, I couldn't get them to take it. And that was when the machine filled up with quarters because we put it on test. And I said, hmm, I'm kind of glad they didn't take it. And so we looked at all the money that we had, and uh, it was enough to build 11 units. So we bought the parts for 11 units, sold them for cash, and uh, took that cash and built 34, I think, and sold those for cash. And then the next run was over 100, and pretty soon we were doing 100 a day, and we were off to the races. Very good. And, and also, it's interesting to me, anyway, hopefully to you guys, <laughs> that it was possibly the, world, the first franchise as well, Pong. Because Pong doubles, Pong in a barrel, Dr. Pong, Snoopy Pong, Ping Pong, Super Pong, Quadra Pong, they all came out within... Three years or so of Pong. Yeah, so we way was, overdid it. Was, <laughs> were, were, were any of them success, as successful as Pong? None of them were as successful as Pong, but what a lot of people don't realize is that we had filed patents, but in those days it took three years to get a patent, and so there was, that, that meant no protection at all. And so what we all the companies that were copying us, of the, of the 150,000 Pong games, Pong-type games that were out there, Atari only did about 35,000 of them. Now, all the rest of them were from knockoff artists, which really angered me. And so our way of, of sort of dealing with that is we felt that if we were to modify, that we could take markets away from people who were just copying the same old thing, which we actually did. So we went from a, I call it, from a third market share of our own product to in 1977, we had an, 80, uh, an 87% market share. Wow. So we did something right. Hmm. And then in the UK, I guess most people's first experience of Atari was the VCS, the video computer system, 1977. And... Dear old Will Wright, uh, if we can run the second part of the VT, uh, Will Wright's uh, uh, thoughts on the incredibly influential console. So we've ever needed any That's proof. That's the first time I've ever seen that commercial. Is it really? <laughs> really. I thought it was your idea. No. That, uh, that, was, uh, that was very corny. <laughs> okay. We're going to the Chuck E. Cheese ones later. Oh, oh don't do that. <laughs> but Morecambe and Wise, I mean, obviously huge comedians over here. There was a big coup, I think, at the time. And I remember those from when I was small. Um, but that, again, points to social games. You know, the, the idea of right. a family party. Absolutely. Was that, was that something that Atari, you and Atari wanted to promote? I always felt that uh, there were too few ways for families to have fun together. And so we really wanted to have games 
uh, that had multiple controllers, that had a party experience to it. Um, I don't know if you realize this, but 93% uh, of all board games were actually purchased by women for their household. This whole idea of, of the hearth and that sort of thing. And I felt that that dynamic was important enough that um, I wanted to maintain it. And uh, it wasn't until the games got really, really violent uh, in the middle 80s that women actually quit buying video games for the family. This, this sounds funny, but, but we, uh, in the early d days of Pong and, uh, and the VCS, uh, a lot of that was purchased by women for, the, for their home. Right. When did you realize that the coin-up could translate to the home? When did you, when did you make Immediately. that connection? I mean, we, um, we saw that the coin-operated Pong game, that people wanted to have that at home. And so we did a dedicated chip, and then it was sort of off to the races from there. Hmm. And you mentioned the controllers. I mean, I guess you weren't, really weren't shy of experimenting with different games controllers. I mean, we've got the paddles here somewhere. I mean, if any of you haven't seen it, this is the VCS or the 2600, um, <clears throat> which I always remember as being made of wood, which is the most special thing, uh, one of the most special things about it. So this well, our market, th this, is, this is actually plastic, painted to look like wood. Yeah. It's <laughs> very, I was very classy, you know. <laughs> but this is a Star Raiders controller. Um, <clears throat> of course, it came with paddles and a joystick, yeah. first joystick. The joypad, obviously, these days, all gamers know the joypad. Joysticks, unfortunately, have gone a little bit out of vogue. But do you wish the joystick was still around? I kind of like the joypad. Oh, okay. Um, do you know why you have a joypad and not a joystick? Joysticks break a lot more than joypad. Turns out that when you are playing a game and getting beat, you can exert massive amounts of energy in a joystick. And, uh, and it's, uh, you, you know, unless you make them out of titanium or something like that. Um, we were convinced in the coin-operated world that Godzilla played our games. I, we produced a game with a, with a, uh, a uh, steering wheel in which people would twist off half-inch cold-rolled steel with just this much leverage. And, um, and so as a result, whenever we'd have a steering wheel on something, you'd have, always have it so that they could overplay. Because if you put a stop in there, you couldn't build the machines strongly enough to, to do that. And so joysticks, it's, it's physics. Physics killed the joystick. <laughs> Have you played the Nintendo Wii? Yes. What do you think of the controls of that? I love it. Um, and in fact, I will predict that uh, the next few years will be the years of physicality in gameplay. I mean, there's some uh, new technology, some these 3D cameras, in which you can uh, play a physical game using your body as the play piece and uh, not even have to have a, uh, a controller. And uh, I just think that's going to be huge one of these days, hmm. you know, in the next little while.
So everybody's got their own VCS favourite. Everybody was around in those days, old enough. Mine was Combat. Do you have a favourite? I... Is Combat your favourite too? It's my favourite. There's a little conceit here. I've always wanted to do this. Um, uh, we've, we've, we've actually got the Xbox emulator version, largely because, <coughs> largely because the, uh, the VCS doesn't plug into the projector because <laughs> it's, it's an RF output, <coughs> which is a bit of a shame. So we, we've, uh, do you, do you, we've do you want to know why that is? No. I do want to know. Sorry, I don't know why it is, but I do want to know. <laughs> I don't know. We, played Freudian slip. So, we played so many cheats that we actually used the television set to compensate for some of the deficiencies of what it is. And the new, smarter television sets just won't sink to the crap that we were putting out. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's another story for another time. So I seem to be the green one. Oh. Oh. Have you pressed? What did you press? Hang on, hide. Let's get rid of that. Oh. Oh, oh, hang on, this one's going to be easy. Ah! <laughs> what did I do? I lose. <laughs> no, you beat me. Did you, I? You whacked me. Yeah, we can turn off off now. Oh, well. <laughs> it's a nice idea. <laughs> I've, got to tell you, I've, I've got to tell a quick story about Pong. Why was Pong successful? And one of the reasons is that it was really at the beginning of women's liberation. Where, and because Pong used small muscle coordination, and most games require large muscle coordination, well, it turned out that the average woman in a bar could beat the average man for the very first time in a game. And so you had these hot girls that were hanging out at the bar hustling pong, <laughs> pong things. And, uh, and it was every night, it was woman's choice because a girl could go into a bar, want to play pong, which they did, see a guy that they liked on the bar stools and say, hey, can you come over and play pong with me? And if you, if you beat me, you'll have to buy me a drink, or uh, I'll buy you a drink. And she'd never lose, so she never had to buy drinks, and she was there with the guys she wanted. It was wonderful. Um, and uh, being a guy that sort of knew how to play the game, I worked that. <laughs> but more than that, in, in the ensuing years, the number of people that said, came up to me and said, I met my husband or wife playing Pong, I, you know, I, I'm surprised there wasn't a little baby boom. <laughs> Very good. Um, I guess moving on to from Atari to pizza time theatres, Chuck E. Cheese's pizza time theatres, something we don't really know of in the UK. We may know if, if you're geeky enough like me to do some research right. into it, but um, it, it's got an air of mystery, I guess, for UK gamers. Um, so let's take a look at it, I guess. We've got some VT, I think. you say you're an eccentric inventor? I wanted to have a restaurant where kids could be king. I mean, if you, if you look at the way kids think about going out to dinner, they have to behave themselves, they have to sit still, 
all that sort of stuff. I mean, that's horrible for kids. The kids basically want to create chaos wherever they are. It's built into their DNA. So I wanted to have it be a place where kids could create chaos, and it was okay. And I figured that when a family goes out to dinner, mom and dad will choose where to go five times, but the kids will get out of that five times. The kids will get to choose once. That's enough to make a business on And so the pizza was really a life support system for a big arcade. I mean, a third of the revenue was from uh, games and uh, and pizza. If you really want to create crappy pizza, you can do it really cheaply. And uh, and since kids don't care, you know, it's it's one of those things. And we serve beer and wine, so you could keep the parents anesthetized. it worked. <laughs> and there was something like 500 of them now? There's 500. does about a billion dollars in revenue each year. That's amazing. Yeah. And the giant robots? Those <laughs> I've got giant, to ask about them. Those giant robots. Um, the problem with mechanical things, as opposed to just moving electronics around, is mechanical things break. And so these things had to be made so strong and so robust that they just work over and over and over again. And uh, it took us almost three years to get a mean time between failure up to a year or so. Right. And the kids like them? Because they look really scary to me. <laughs> the kids... Do you want me... This is a, this is a secret. <laughs> Nobody's listening. The, ki- the kids don't care. It's all a big head fake. The kids know that if they say, Mommy, Daddy, I want to go and spend a whole bunch of money on the video games, that they wouldn't get to go. But if they say, I want to go see Chuck E. Cheese, he's so cool, that works. The kids... Ten seconds after they're in the place, they're out of there. They don't care about the food. They don't care about anything. All they want to do is play the games. The number of kids that have actually sat through and watched the animals is zero. (laughs) It's all there to take a little bit of the sting of the horrible experience from the parents. Because the parents are suffering. You know, it's noisy. It's chaotic. The food's bad, you know. <laughs> the only reason they're there is to uh, is 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 because of their kids, and so we just try to take as much sting out of as we can. The animals are head fake. I hate to tell you. <laughs> you guys have never been to one, have you? Did it? You, you'll love it. <laughs> <laughs> Did it help keep the arcade culture alive? Yes and no. <clears throat> What really, the arcade culture is dead in all real structures right now. And, um, and one of the reasons is that the, anything that you can do in a noisy location where you have to stand, the experience is better at home with the stuff. The only thing that keeps the arcade culture alive is winning stuff. And so you get big strings of tickets, 
and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of tickets that at the end of the night the kids can turn in for a whistle. And, uh, and they think that's cool. I don't know why they do. And, uh, and that's what they like to do. They like to win the tickets so they win little stuff that they play with for four or five seconds and then they throw it away. Right. It's the nature of kids. Collecting stuff. Just getting stuff to get stuff and then not play with it. <laughs> right. So your latest venture, you wink, um, which I think we've got some VT on. So let's have a look at that first before I ask you some questions. <laughs> so is this Chuck E. Cheese for adults? Yes. Um, I felt that there was a new type of game, which I call social game, and that's where a group of four, six, eight of you around a table having fun. And, and look throughout history that people like to get together, share food, share beverages, share fun. And I felt that there was a new kind of game, and the game would be for that environment. And a lot of games... When you play games, the conversation drops. A good board game, the conversation actually picks up. Um, And I felt that there was a category of video game that hadn't been developed, which created a lot of table interaction. And and, And I felt that if we knew more about that social dynamic, that as um, in the next... 20 years, everybody will have a touch-sensitive coffee table. Think of a great big iPhone, and it'll be double-touch, and the family will sit around it, and we'll play games, and you can sort your pictures and do do all kinds of fun stuff. And so I'm going to be providing software for that marketplace, and Uink was meant as a Touch ground uh, as a, a test, testing ground for those kinds of games. And I can tell you right now that there are some games right now that people absolutely love and that will be very, very successful uh, once the, the physical plant hardware is going to be in place. Um, I've got to tell you one that's just so fun. Ever played Truth or Dare? Truth or Dare, you say, how do you make a video game out of that? Well, it turns out that if you just simply get the people to choose, you know, truth or dare, you don't have to score it. Um, You can even have a version that we call after dark. So they only come on at 10 o'clock. And you let people of moderate morals write them. Uh, (laughs) You can have a lot of fun. In fact, we let our cocktail waitresses write some of the, the stuff for it. We were afraid we were going to lose our liquor license. But, uh, <laughs> but anyway, it was... Uh, but if you walk in the restaurant and there's a table, and in general, if there are four girls at a table cracking up, they're playing truth, truth or dare. And... Uh, you know, there's, there's mixed groups later at night, given enough alcohol. 
but um, but this is so much fun for girls. Twenty uh, something with a bunch of girlfriends, you know, answering questions about themselves. Girls like to talk about stuff like that. You know, we our, our guy, we could sort of give it or leave it, but uh, girls really like that stuff. And I would have never forget. You know, this was designed by actually my oldest daughter. And I said, how do you score it? But she was totally right. She designed the game, and it's one of our, hot, our, our top games. And there's this Pong on there as well, the sort of six-player Pong. Six-player Pong. Is that still big? What we wanted to try there is a good socially stable number is four, two couples. That's a, that's a very typical um, you know, dating dynamic. We wanted to try six because we wanted to see if we could get people to loosely mingle in a bar, you know, so that you had three twos that never that didn't know each other before, or a four and a two, and so we thought we'd try six, and uh, and it kind of works. Um, we think eight is going to be better. We've got an eight one that we're working on right now, hmm. and uh, these are real simple games, so that. Uh, and they're structured, um, one of the things that you try to do to make it really fun in a social game is have reflexing. Reflexing is a, the name for based on how good you are, we make it easier or hard dynamically during the game. So that if you're really, really crappy, we make the game so that it's much easier for you. And if you're really good, we make it harder for you so that people of different skill levels can all play together and have a good time. For example, on the Pong game, every time you hit the ball, your paddle gets a little tiny bit smaller. And what that does is it says that if I'm good and I'm hogging the ball, pretty soon I've got this little tiny nubbin, and the people who are sort of out there have got got the big one and so it makes it so that we can all play and and feel like we're doing good because if I'm just hogging the ball uh, pretty soon my paddle goes away Mm -hmm. and so I have to depend on the other people so it it keeps that balance in and we've discovered a lot of interesting things that way to keep keep it exciting Mm. does that annoy the really good gamers then Pardon? Does it annoy the really good gamers? I'm thinking about Mario Kart, for instance. Um, you know, there's a lot of core gamers, for want of a better term, really annoyed with Mario Kart because it there's an elastic kind of uh, link between the carts. I think that it's absolutely okay to abuse unmercifully the really good players. <laughs> <laughs> they deserve it. <laughs> Okay. Well, see what happens. As you get older, it turns out that you lose about five milliseconds of reaction time every year. So that when you're my age, the only way I can beat my kids is with stealth, guile, and cheating. <laughs> And so I build into most of the games an ability to cheat. Um, And uh, my kids think that I'm giving them really, really bad 
moral coaching. And I say, no, these are life skills. <laughs> do, you, do you beat them every time? Oh, no. Oh, no, okay. but, but they've learned a lot about cheating from me. <laughs> <laughs> so I think we've got, um, we've got about, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes left. I'd like uh, to offer the opportunity to the audience to ask some questions. So I've got to say, because the event's being filmed, you need to wait for the microphone uh, so we can capture your questions. Please start your question with who you are and what you do. Um, and the microphone will be on when it's handed to you, so please don't switch it off. Hello, my name's James. I'm trying to get into the gaming industry. You're, you talk a lot about how you react to the feedback you get. How do you ga gather the feedback from, from all of the games that you develop? You know, there is nothing like over-the-shoulder observation of the person playing. And uh, you've just got to put in a lot of face time uh, watching how people play, pl actually playing with people on a multiple-player game basis. Um, and, um, you know, you learn after a while how to be kind of perceptive about some of these things. See when people are being frustrated. Um, and then there's kind of some interesting rules, like when you have X number of, of uh, rounds, um, you can do it almost statistically and um, make it easier uh, to get from one round to uh, from one level to another. We used to start out by saying that we wanted 50% of the people who played this round to get to the next round. And so you're sort of losing half the people each time. We found out later on that you actually had to shrink that. As the rounds went on, you'd want to only have a third get past, and then 25%, and then 20%. And, and uh, again, it's abuse of the really talented people. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the quarters. Yes. Good question. Is this chap down there, Dave? Oh. Up there. Oh, sorry, Tim. Okay. Hi, uh, Johnny Minkley from uh, Games Journalist from BBC Radio on Eurogamer. Um, you talked about your enthusiasm for Nintendo Wii. Uh, if you look at possibly the biggest mass market successful game of the last few years, it would be Wii Sports, and perhaps Wii Sports Tennis is kind of the iconic game from that. In a way, that's the 21st century's Pong. Yes. Um, now, your games originally were, to a large extent, defined by the limits of technology. And since then, arguably, people got carried away, made games too complicated, uh, and it's gone full circle now. So do you think, in a way, the success of Wii proves that you were right in the first place about making games <laughs> accessible and simple? Um, with all due modesty, yes. I think I was right. <laughs> uh, now, a funny thing happened on the way to the forum... Um, if I think th there was sort of a, a high point, um, probably 82, 83, in which um, if you were to ask at random somebody, and these are United States figures, so I, I, I think we can extrapolate, uh, you would got 40% of the population said that they had played a video game in the previous week. That's a very, very heavy penetration. What happened 
uh, after that is two things happened in the video game side, primarily on the coin-op side, which was the uh, continuation feature. And that was where you could play a game and then put another coin in to play further in that game. What that did is it allowed for a tremendous amount of money to be made by the machine, but the games got very complex. And the complexity lost the casual game player. I mean, gone was the Pac-Man, where everybody could sort of see what to do and play it. Gone was the Asteroids, where the objectives were very, very clear. Then with the Mortal Kombat series and the punch-kick-fight games, the games got very violent. That lost the women. And so almost in the blink of an eye, from 1983 to probably 1989, 1988, the business, while still successful, was getting more and more money out of a smaller and smaller number of people. And so if you ask the same question in 1990, it dropped down to about 8% of the population had played a game in the previous week. But they were spending so much more. And so if you look at the numbers right now, the console game market before Wii was totally supported by 15 million people. They had a $1,000-plus-year habit, but it was a very small little demographic. Then the casual game market, sort of out of the blue on the, on the Internet, uh, exploded, and now we're starting to get past back into that, and the Wii came along, and it started saying, hey, Grandma and Grandpa can play this, uh, the whole family can play it, it kind of got back into this fun area. So the, uh, the number of players is expanding again, and I'm, I couldn't be, I, I'm very, very happy about it. Uh, because I think it should be, games are good for you. Games make you smarter on all the standardized tests. They help you solve problems. Um, they delay the onset of Alzheimer's. Uh, people, in their 60s, 70s, and 80s to play games are much more mentally alert. Um, games are good for you. And so anything we can do to promote gameplay across the board, the better off we are. And so I, I just think that, uh, that all, getting these games uh, out there and, and enjoyed by the population is going to be a good thing. Have you still got an ambition in console games, do you think, to, to develop anything? Is there anything burning away in your brain to, to, to want to develop something for the Nintendo Wii or developing a new console? My next little while, I'm going to be focusing on games and education. It's a, uh, an area that I think is very important. Um, in America, the school system is in massive disarray. It's just horrible. And uh, particularly when you're talking about inner city and, and uh, disadvantaged kids, the school is just not you know, doing a good job for them. And there are so many wonderful things that uh, games can do. I've been doing a lot of research on how people learn. 
and how important context is. And uh, I just believe that the next big wave of uh, value is, uh, is in education. And I, I kind of want to leave a, a legacy more than just fun. Okay. Any more questions? Time for a couple more, right? Ah, gentleman down there. Hi, um, Dominic Mason from Atom 5 Productions. We're a video games development company. I did have a previous question, but you answered that. Thank you very much for that lengthy answer. That was great. Um, I just want to ask you which game that you haven't developed have you learnt most from? The game that I did not develop. Yeah, one that you've played and, and that sort of light bulb above your head has gone on. Sort of Nolan Bushnell's top ten. I, I think the early Doom games were just a technological tour de force to get the graphics out of the, uh, the hardware at the time was just mind-boggling to me. Uh, I loved the Myst games and Riven. Um, I mean, I feel like I've been to those islands. I, 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 I know what they sound like. I know what they feel like. I don't know what they smell like, but you know. Um, I think they were very, very good. And, and of course, Tetris was such a wonderful game that uh, you, know, you just can't help but think that it was, it was an important one. Right now, I think uh, some of the first person shooters are really good. Halo, um, I think, uh, some of the Command and Conquer. And I love, I love the Sims. You know, Will Wright is just a genius. I just love his stuff. Uh, I don't know if you've noticed, but all the Sims product are not just straightforward, but they all have quirks in them. And I just love those things. You know, just little things where you say, ah, that's cool. And you know, whenever you get that aha, uh, you know they've done some really good stuff. Um, oh, there's just too many. It's like when somebody says, what is your favorite movie of all time? And you just can't do it. Uh, so you're not averse to violent games then? I, I kind of had a feeling because you you talk quite a lot about um, about social and about inclusive and family games. But you, but you do play, obviously, Halo, Command and Conquer. Well, do see, you? it's really okay to, to kill really, really, really bad guys. <laughs> they need to be killed. And, um, and, and aliens. Huh? Aliens, obviously. Aliens. Yeah. Um, when you're, you know, a, a bad guy stealing cars and beating up on whores and things like that in Grand Theft Auto, these are people that don't need to be killed. You know, so there's a... There's a fundamental moral distinction. You, you, know, you don't want to kill the good guys. You only want to kill the bad guys. Hmm. And I know that some people think that that's not great. It's also okay to kill dead guys. So if you... Oh, House of the Dead. I can... House of the Dead, you know, and zombies and stuff like that. Because <laughs> you figure, what could be the moral problem killing somebody that's already dead? I mean, come on. Um, and... 
you've also got to understand that there are certain game structures that are so that you just have to use them. And kill or be killed is is really one of those those things that you know every single DNA in the in 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 the world male says that that's a fun game structure, you know, because you have to sort of expose yourself and in in order to get a good shot off, and that's just a fun gameplay. Um, my wife doesn't get it at all. She thinks it's horrible. Um, I think it's a guy thing hmm. in general, but uh, it's a great game dynamic. I mean, the number of hours I've spent playing Doom and those things, it's just, I could have been successful. <laughs> <laughs> so we had, some, we had some questions on the internet as well, and uh, I, I feel honor-bound to, to ask a couple of them, particularly one that I've wanted to ask, which is... Um, do you believe, this is from Daniel Asher, um, do you believe that the connectedness of the internet can help make games social? Uh, and what are the key factors in making online games a social experience? You know, this is, they're social and they're social. The internet is a social medium, but it's very stilted and it's very flat. Um, social is when you can buy somebody a drink an album and the, you know that's really social sitting in a dark room in your underwear talking with a thousand people may seem social but it's not that cool I mean deep down inside particularly when that really, really hot girl that you're talking to on the net happens to be a 64-year-old guy. <laughs> you know, that, takes, that takes a lot of the fun out. So, I don't know. Uh, I think that... Um, I think the, the pub public space is always going to be here. Have you ever asked yourself why you can buy a bottle of gin, take it home, and make about 20 martinis for about the same cost as you can buy one martini down on the high street? It's because the martini in the bar has people around. And uh, drinking home just is not fun. Yet. <laughs> <laughs> Until you have something to do, right. to do with it. So we've got, I think we've got time for... After will probably kill me, but time for one more question. Go at the front. Hello, I'm John Lau from a digital media agency called Online CC. Um, just as the novel uh, in literature started off as a mass market good and is now considered a, a staple medium of artistic expression, and uh, films were you know originally conceived as technological marvels, do you think that? Uh, games developers will one day be considered artists, that, that games will be a medium of artistic expression? Oh, I think they already are. I think, um, I mean, some of the music, some of the art, some of the beauty, some of the landscapes, some of the worlds that have been created in the minds of uh, the people 
gorgeous, fantastic, and wonderful. Um, and and the, the really, really neat thing about the game business is it really stretches the technological imagination as well as the artistic. Because many of these things are enabled by the software tools, by the hardware power. And so there's this wonderful marriage between technology and art that I find really exhilarating. I mean, the, we used to sit around and not ask, what game did we want to do? We would ask, what game can we do that would push the technology that we have right up to the, the limit? And that was the fun part, because we could see that next year you were going to get you know, a doubling in speed, uh, a, a tripling of, uh, of uh, memory. I mean, in, the, in the, the Atari days, memory was our big bugaboo. It was expensive, it was slow, it was buggy, and so we had to figure out ways to cheat and, and use very little memory. Do you know that this unit right here, how many bytes of memory do you think it has? Any guesses? 128 bytes. That is really crappy. <laughs> you know? And, uh, and we did it strictly for the cost. I mean, I could tell you so many mistakes I made on this thing. Um, one of them is this, the size of the bandwidth of, of the cartridge bus. It's 22 pins. For an extra three cents, I could have gone to 24 pins. I could have had a read-write line on it. I could have put ROM out here. We just didn't think that it would ever happen. When we designed this puppy, we thought that we could maybe do 20 cartridges. Really, that's what we thought. And, uh, and it's just amazing. I think there was 600 cartridges built for this over its life. So. <laughs> Never underestimate the software guys. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Right, we better leave it there, I think. But, uh, well, what can I say? BAFTA Fellow. Thank My, you very much, Nolan Bushnell. I'm very honored, and, and thank you, BAFTA members. So there we go. Nolan Bushnell and his life in video games. Uh, just to explain, as I'm sure you gathered, um, Andy and Nolan weren't sat there admiring One Life Left stings during the session. Um, unfortunately, the audio wasn't captured, so forgive us for that. But I think that you could get the gist of it. Um, and what a remarkable man. Uh, we're grateful to BAFTA for allowing us to podcast the session. Uh, do go onto their website. They're hosting a number of talks this year that um, members and non-members can attend thanks for sticking with this special edition of one life left we're going to return next week with something equally different remember series five begins in a few weeks time so we'll see you then bye <laughs>